Okay, we are here to discuss the page or princess of cups today. She has many, many titles. The Princess of the Waters, the Lotus of the Palace of Floods, the Princess and Empress of Nymphs and Undines, the Throne of the Ace of Cups. So there's actually quite a lot to unpack in there, as with all princesses, but maybe we can just hit real quick, you know, the thing about the lotus. All princesses are either roses or lotuses, right? I always tend to look at that as symbolic of their role as being the, you know, the ultimate manifestation or, or flowering of, mm-hmm, of the absolutely. soup. As well as both the rose and lotus being these deeply feminine archetypes. The lotus goes with the princess of cups and the princess or page of swords. The rose goes with princess or page of wands and the princess or page of discs. And I think we probably had some theory at some point that we either looked up or talked about, about why the rose goes with the first and last, the fire and the earth, whereas the lotus goes with the swords and the cups. Do you remember anything about that? Well, I don't remember exactly what we had to say about that in the Princess of Wands episode, but just off the top of my head, the rose is a more passionate and earthy type of manifestation as opposed to the lotus, which would yeah. make sense why it goes with wands and discs. Right. I think it also makes sense because there is that connection between wands and discs where, you know, it's the the end of the cycle and the beginning of the cycle are connected. Yeah, that passion purity thing. It almost seems like the lotus is more of a, a virginal well, still having to do with birth, but more of a virginal energy. And the princess of cups and swords kind of feel that way a little bit more so than the princess of discs, who's mm. obviously already pregnant, and the princess <laughs> of wands, who's, you know, a hot the tamale. The hot tamale. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes a lot of sense. There's definitely qualities of purity, uh, and especially with the lotus symbol, which we can talk about more. You know, again, it's that red versus white, you know, sometimes expressed as roses versus lily, carnality versus purity, kind of a thing. And also, what's interesting to think about elementally is that fire and earth are, I guess, considered neutral complements. They're not, yeah, you know, and same thing with water and air. They're not opposites. They're not friendly the way fire and air are masculine seats or the way earth and water are feminine. Yeah, that is interesting. So in that sense, then there's a sort of masculine and feminine rose and a masculine and feminine lotus. Yeah. Suit-wise. Totally get where you're going with that. Yeah, so so this would be uh, this lotus, the lotus of the palace of floods would be the feminine one and then the the swords one would be the mask quote unquote masculine lotus right which sort of makes sense when you consider their their personalities and meanings right and if you also think about the way a lotus grows you know it grows with its roots in the water and it reaches up to the air so <laughs> right i mean i and guess it's you could particularly say- um appropriate for this particular princess just because of the lotus's connection with death and uh, Scorpio. Right. Because it's oh. got that meaning of, you know, transformation from the mud, like the death card, you know, what what grows from the the, pre- the purity that, that flowers from what's 
putrid and yeah. muddy. Maybe we can talk for a second about her elemental qualities as earth of water. Yeah. Yeah. So like all princesses, she is the earthy part of her suit. And um, I was kind of reviewing some Lon Milo Duquette yesterday. And, uh, and he was talking about how the princesses all have to do with you know, something we've talked about, the idea that they are the manifestation of the element in the in the actual world. It's grounding, the grounding of emotion, the grounding of the suit. When I think about, you know, the elemental correspondences of the court cards, in this case, earth of water, mm-hmm. you can break it down into, like, translate it according to the four powers of the Sphinx. So earth yeah. is the action, the, the silence, but taking action, it's the manifestation and then water, the whole power of that is to dare and to love. So if you if you can really boil it down, the Princess of Cups is about taking action in response to emotions and intuition. And you can also think of earthy parts of an element as being the part of the element that stabilizes and crystallizes, which is a term we'll talk more about, bringing it, as you say, into action, into the real world, into the earth itself, into something that you can actually tangibly touch and perceive. Yeah, the princesses are the embodiment or flowering of the ace, so of the whole suit of water. So if you think about what's the role of water, what's the purpose of water, this is the the ultimate expression of that. So the purpose of water is it, it's the generator of life. It's got the emotional component and it's got a, a shape-shifting component. And so if you think about all those in relation to how that might manifest in the world, you get this artistic type of person mm-hmm. or energy that has a real muse-like quality. Yeah, someone who really goes between that world of feeling and the real world back and forth. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think um, Libra Theta talks about this card in terms of the soul and the, the relationship to the higher soul and its, and its spiritual patterns in the world. Right. And so her relationship to the ace in particular is always interesting to think about. On the one hand, the court cards are considered elemental aspects of the ace, right? Like the ace itself is unmanifest potential, but the court cards sort of go through the fiery part, the watery part, the airy part, and the earthy part. But even within that, the earthy part is separate, right? Separate and also containing all that came before it. Yes. And Duquette says something really interesting. He says, the ace can be worshipped, but the princess can be adored. (laughs) <laughs> mm, yeah, there's like <laughs> removal of that barrier instead of just the pure worship of Keter, which is ineffable. It's down here in Malkut in the world. Right. So we also talk about we talk about the princesses as having a geographic component, not necessarily so much of a temporal component, although we can talk about that in a way, but also as yeah, having space a, rather than time, as right, I think Duquette right. calls it. If you conceive of the the sphere of the Earth, they're all uh, quadrants around the North Pole, right? Yeah. Right. So it's the North Pole 
and over we had the princess who was kind of over the continent of Asia, Princess of Wands was, and this princess sort of over the Pacific. Yeah, which quadrant. makes perfect sense. Right. <laughs> right. Where all the water is. <laughs> right. And I think, you know, in the context of that, it's really interesting to think of her as a contrast to the Princess of Wands. So, you know, on the one hand, the Princess of Wands... She was a princess of fire. She was, you know, the heart of the princess of wands was in Leo, in rulership and strength. And then the the heart of the princess of cups is in Scorpio, in death and surrender and transformation. Right. So they're, in a way, they have, you know, elementally, they have this contrast going. Right. Regulus versus Antares. So Antares is the watcher of the West and Regulus is the watcher of the North. So, you know, I yeah, mean, the heart of the lion and the heart of the scorpion. Right, right. Rulership versus sacrifice and surrender. Yeah. So they have, you know, maybe they aren't polar opposites in terms of direction, but they certainly have, right. that, you know, some they're opposite not on the qualities. same astrological axis, Leo Scorpio, right. they're square, they're square to each other. Yeah. So the princess who would be on the opposite axis would be the princess of swords. Right. But, you know, but then again, these dualities kind of play out in all different ways, right? So the polar opposite princesses would be both in quote unquote masculine suits, and polar opposite suits. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there's, you know, any way you split the pairs, there's going to be opposites and similarities. Right. What yeah. we have here for opposites would be the water fire polarity between which is a powerful one Mm -hmm. one thing we could mention um just if people want the overview that we have that really extensive overview on the whole concepts of the princess and how they relate as throne of the ace and all that that we did as the intro to the princess of wands episode yeah so for much 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 more on <laughs> on how uh the princesses work systemically among court cards you can refer to episode 35 which was the page or princess of wands episode oh you know what i wanted to ask you a little bit and see if you have an opinion about this cuz i don't think we talked about it I mean, in The Last Princess, as looking at those nine decans that are sort of associated with her Libra, Scorpio, Sagittarius, does a princess have a shadow? You know, that's a good question. I never thought about it that particular way. But one thing that I was was thinking about in relation to this card, it's not actually one of her decans. But mm. I think in um, the last episode, we may have talked about how another way of assigning minors to the court cards is through their number. So in this case, the 10 of cups would be associated with this princess because it's Malkut of cups, just as she's Malkut of cups. Mm -hmm. And so because of that cards kind of more shadowy interpretation, which does fit with her negative side, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. the the one negative thing you could say about a princess of cups is their tendency to be overly romantic or invested in illusion. Right. And to kind of get lost in that and unreliable in that way. Which is Mm -hmm. one of the meanings of 10 of cups. So I'd have to go through every one and think about it to see if that applies as a shadow for all of them. 
it, it very well could be because the tens are all kind of that type of card, except for yeah. maybe the ten of discs. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're kind of like the degradation of the suit in a sense. So you could think of the tens as being the shadow of the princesses. Yeah, and perhaps. even the tens that I like that a lot. And even the ten of discs, you know, if there's a shadow to it at all, it's that it's sleeping, right? Eh, or, know, or, it's, or or hoarding or unconscious. Yeah, mm-hmm. I like that a lot. And also, you know, that's something I I think about with this card that. Unlike some of the other cups courts, we've talked a lot with the knight or king, queen, and prince or knight. We talked a lot about sort of betrayal or, you know, or not being quite able to trust some of them in one way or another. But this one, it's more like flaky than devious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Like if they're not there, it's because they're somewhere else, not because they're trying to undermine you. Exactly. Right. Agreed. <laughs> <laughs> so actual decans associated with the Page of Cups are the three decans of Libra, the three decans of Scorpio, the three decans of Sagittarius. And I was thinking it's kind of interesting to look at that story. You know, if we look at those mottos that you brought up originally, um, I balance I desire, I see, right? So I balance for Libra, Mm. I desire for Scorpio, and I see for Sagittarius. I was thinking that that, particularly the I desire and I see part, reminds me of her sort of psychic qualities, you know, Mm. her ability, the fish in the cup thing, (laughs) you know, the ability to see into the other realms and to take something back from that. Yeah, I I, I can get that. I was thinking about that as well, that whole cycle, the story that could be told through the the majors, adjustment, death, and art. Yeah. You know, adjustment as being kind of karmic and balancing the transformation, death and rebirth, and then the soul healing and growth of the right. art card. There's kind right. of a story there. You know, so you go from air to water to fire, so from sort of a mental approach to a emotional surrender in Scorpio, and then the drive to reconcile in... um, Yeah, it's like a story about dissolving and merging with the soul somehow, you know, some Mm -hmm. sort of karmic rebalancing that, you know, you you have this death and rebirth experience. and, And then there's that the rebirth is the art card where what's been dissolved is now combined. Yes, I like that. And also the thing about the art card is that, of course, it has to do with alchemy. And you can think of this princess in a way as the hidden stone yeah. of alchemy, yep. you know, the earthy part of water. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that that actually reminds me, I think, I, I don't, I want to say this might have been in Libra Theta. I think it called her the one thing through its many forms. And if that mm. that's not a description of the stone, I don't know what is. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I mean, she is the crystal princess, right? <laughs> you know? right. So if a crystal right. isn't a hidden stone, I also don't know what that is. <laughs> yeah, and it called her the imaginative consciousness, which makes a lot of sense. She provides an image to all created things that have an appearance in a form fitting to each. Yeah, yeah, you know, this makes me think of the phrase, Active imagination, you know, just like you were saying, she's, you know, as the princess of the fourth riddle, all princesses are the earthy part of their suit, making them the active part of their suit, in a sense. And the 
suit of cups is the imaginative suit. We can think of her as active imagination as the part of us. I like that. Yeah. So when we're doing that kind of visionary work, path working, trance meditation, whatever it is, that has something to do with this energy. Because I never really thought about that. You know, we hear that term active imagination being thrown around all the time, but I never really specifically associated it with this card. You know, but that really also makes sense with the minors, because if you think about like the two, three and four of swords have that kind of meditative quality about them. Yeah, yeah. definitely. Mm-hmm. The the whole the mind, the action of the mind. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we and, got- and it, it and it's since it's so early in the suit, it, a pretty balanced. Um, you know, even the three of <laughs> before swords, everything goes to the- shit. You mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Even though the three is 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 difficult, it's also yeah. about knowing yourself. There's a clarity know, to it, like all the Libra cards. Yeah. So we have the two, three, and four of swords, the five, six, and seven of cups, the eight, nine, and 10 of wands. And so, you know, so you have that mental meditation in the early cards, and then that act of, you know, death and sacrifice and transfiguration in the middle cards. And, you know, the seven of cups is that card of dreams and changes. And then the eight, nine, and 10 could be like bringing the message back or something like that, right? Messages Mm. and warnings. Yes. You know, that this whole process of going to the other side and bringing back the information. Yeah, and and actually building something with it, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. It's not just the dreaming, but it's giving substance to those ideals. Right, right. Acting on them. Or, um, so in Rune Soup, they, they call this, and you'll know why, they call this red booking, right? So you go back, you go into your visions or your trances or your dreams, and then you turn it into physical art or writing, just like Carl Jung's red book. Yep. And that reminds me of this card. Yeah, definitely. She's definitely an astral traveler who brings back something and and into the world. And actually and does something about it. <laughs> yeah, and actually does something with it. Right. She's not exactly all that passive, even though at first glance, because she's such a dreamy personality, you might think so. Mm-hmm. But those those dreams are real to her, real enough to act on. Yes. Another thing that's kind of interesting to think about is her complement or opposite. You know, so so if she's the earthy part of water, you can contrast her with the watery part of Earth. Uh, which would be the queen right. of discs or pentacles. And that was the- one of my cards for today. Oh, that's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And plus it's the final decan, I think, right? So the final decan uh, corresponding to the Pager Princess of Cups would be the final decan of Sagittarius, which is the shadow decan of the queen of discs. Yes. Yes. And the queen of discs is interesting because uh, so the, the, the watery part of earth is the part that makes connections with our material resources and abilities. So I think of her as very, as really understanding how the world works, you know, as being shrewd that way. Yeah, it's like the Queen of Discs is emotionally connected to resources, whereas Mm -hmm. the Princess of Cups is like the opposite. Right. She takes emotions and uses them to build resources, maybe. Right, or like the way other people use... The way other people use material resources, she uses her dreams. Right. She's emotionally connected to dreams, but uses them to manifest. 
And it does make you wonder, you know, what the interaction between these two would be like in real life, you know, whether they'd be yeah, completely at odds. They seem definite opposites in a way. <laughs> right. But they yeah. might work together really well, actually. Yeah. One providing what the other lacks, perhaps. Mm -hmm. um, and then other court cards you could associate with this are the... Uh, are the Libra Scorpio and Sagittarius ones. So um, Queen of Swords, Knight or Prince of Cups, of course, her consort, and uh, King of Wands. But you can't forget mm -hmm. also the association she has with her parents. That's right. That's right. So the, the Knight King. and Queen of Cups. Right. This is why court cards are so complex. There are connections with everything. I mean, the princess cards are just, you know, at the center of everything. So her own family, the King of Cups and the Queen of Cups, well, they all have that quality of being able to connect emotionally with humanity and with others, both humanity in general, her father, and humanity in the specific individual, her mother, perhaps. Yeah, we, we definitely want to consider the, um, I mean, the Cups courts when we consider the princess just because the princess is only at her most powerful when she's actively manifesting the positive qualities of her parents. Right. Because, you know, she's, what is the, what is the quote about that? It says, you know, she's, she's, you know, a temple rightly builded when she's manifested as the daughter of wisdom and understanding or will and love and the betrothed of beauty. So that's talking about will and love, her father and mother and betrothed of beauty, the prince. So when she's established a positive connection with all of those things, she's the most powerful card of the suit. And as to her brother slash consort husband, she has to be awoken by beauty, beauty being, you know, to ferret. So yeah, connected yeah. with the the heart of the the holy guardian guardian angel. Yeah, you know, knowledge and understanding are the parents of beauty, and beauty awakens the kingdom. You know, the names of the sephirot are contained in that statement, right? And that's why the princesses, as we mentioned in the princess overview, stand firmly by themselves on their own two feet wearing little armor, if any. Right. Because they're sufficient unto themselves. At their highest manifestation, they carry within them everything they need from the rest of their family. So they can express the positive, the most positive qualities of the, their spouse and parents, I guess. Right. And, and also it's worth remembering that, you know, her dwelling place in Malkut is sometimes said to be the dwelling of the Shekinah, the female aspect of the divine. And that that is, I think it's particularly interesting and relevant in the cup suit because the prince who's going to awaken her is the Scorpio prince, the prince of desire. So the our divine female aspect is awoken by desire is a way to look at that as well. Definitely. I've always thought of this card as being a muse. And mm -hmm. a muse throughout history has always been 
in in the real world, you know, a female muse is usually someone who's desired and and considered beautiful, and that awakens something within an artist to to want to capture that or express that or some something like that. So there's definitely an element of desire there, right? Yeah, I was just listening to Rune Soup yesterday, and I think Gordon White was interviewing Connor Habib, and they were actually talking about desire as the fundamental principle connecting the cosmos together. And, you know, which is, which is an interesting way to look at it. I mean, desire itself has so many different aspects and connotations, depending on what culture you come from. But, um, right. but it is one way of looking at the world. Yeah, and it does fit with, you know, the cups suit as expressing the idea of love. Love and desire are intertwined. Do we have more to say cabalistically? I kind of, but well, do we have? Well, the one thing I would just mention is that we should remember that Malkut and Keter have a unique connection. Yes. Malkut has a direct line to Keter both through being on the middle pillar, straight up, you know, the bottom mm-hmm. to the top. And then there's also the connection with the Keter of the following suit. So right. Malkut has a unique relationship with divinity. Right. So in a sense, card-wise, the pager princess of cups has a direct connection with the ace of cups. It is her throne. But yes. she also has a connection to the, the ace, ace of, of swords. swords. Right. So that clarity, the birth of reason, is what she's giving birth to (laughs) with her ability to dream things into existence. Yeah. So I have a few cardomantic notes if we're ready for that. Sure. Okay. So there are just a couple that are commonly talked about. The playing card equivalent to this card is the Jack of Hearts. So we talked about some of the qualities of the Knight or Prince of Cups as borrowing Knave of Hearts qualities, but there are actually some historical figures that are associated with the Jack of Hearts, which seem to resonate with this card. Um, So the one that you hear about the most is this French military commander, doesn't really sound like it's going to work, but it will. Um, so the name of the French military commander was uh, Etienne de Vignole, but his he was more much much more widely known as La Ire. So La Ire is actually spelled well La meaning the, and then Ire is H I R E. Nobody really knows what it means except that it might have something to do with. You know, some people said he was such a fearsome commander that he was known as Ira Dei, the wrath of God. But the really important thing about him is that this was um, this was during the Hundred Years' War, during the time of Joan of Arc. And he was one of the few military people who believed her, who believed that she was getting messages from God on how to save France. <laughs> so he was her companion in arms. He helped her. You know, they fought side by side. And he was considered, in retrospect, a hero. Um, and I bet because he was a dude, he didn't get burned at the stake like she did. <laughs> right, right. But um, so, so he's considered sort of one of the more positive uh, associations with the Jack of Hearts. And 
I think the reason there's a connection with the hearts or with the cup suit has to do with his faith, his belief that St. Joan, you know, that she was real and that her visions were meaningful and that they should be acted on. So, Hmm. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And then the other character correspondence with this card is that of Paris, Paris of Troy. And it's considered sort of a negative connotation because Paris, you know, his claim to fame is that he awarded the golden apple to Aphrodite, right? And was rewarded with Helen of Troy and warfare. (laughs) Yeah, that's interesting, too, because both of those figures almost have a story about a muse. Yes. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. The first was inspired by Joan of Arc and believing in her visions. And the second one was inspired by the beauty of Helen. Exactly. And then there's that whole connection with being, you know, favored of Aphrodite, um, you know, the connection with her as the goddess of the sea, born from the sea, born from a mm-hmm. shell, you know, or rising mm-hmm. on, a, on a shell. Uh, so there's kind of a connection there as well. And the idea that from Paris's point of view, it was love above all above fame, above knowledge, above power, mm-hmm. you know, number one was love for him. So in terms of some of the older interpretations for this card, I found them very uninspiring. <laughs> um, they basically, <clears throat> like Itea's interpretations all have to do with like being a good worker <laughs> and being recognized for that. So To me, that was not resonant at all, really, with this card. Um, Yeah, although Crowley does say of this card that she makes the best helper, (laughs) the best helpmate Mm -hmm. of all. People described by this card are very dependent on others, but at the same time helpful to them. Rarely at best are they of individual importance. As helpmeets, they are unsurpassed. Oh, okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And I've also seen... Uh, you know, in in playing card fortune telling that this Jack of Hearts is considered one who's drawn towards helping others. So mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. But, you know, when they're when they're ill aspected, uh, then they're more likely to be unreliable. And as we were saying, maybe a little flaky. <laughs> you know, what's really kind of interesting about this period in history, the the period of Joan of Arc, This is where we had, these were plague years, for one, but they were also the years of the upwelling of chivalry. So, you know, where the idea that the knight clad in armor, the knight, you know, who was previously a completely martial figure, was now one who had a religious mission and a mission of charity and helpfulness towards others, towards protecting the innocent. So that was, you know an underlying tenet of the chivalric era, which seems to kind of go with this suit and maybe even this card. Yeah, and it, it reminds me of the the role of the page as either a squire to a knight or a cupbearer to a king. Yes, yes. So that um, Ganymede-type quality. All right. Um, shall we look specifically at Rider-Waite-Smith? Sure. So... I think the first thing we have to deal with is the fish in a cup, right? (laughs) Yeah, the fish in a cup. 
to best part of the card. Hello. And hello from hello below. <laughs> Wade says that this is a fair, pleasing, somewhat effeminate page. I mean, just call the page a girl already. Right. <laughs> um, right. Of studious and intent aspect contemplates a fish rising from a cup to look at him. It is the pictures of the mind taking form, which I, I quite like that turn of phrase. The pictures of the mind taking form. That reminds me of something we already said, that that quote about providing an image to all created things that have appearances in a form fitting to each. So yeah, there's a resonance there. And to me, it looks like the fish is speaking. Yes, it's an oracular fish. (laughs) Yes, the famous talking, wish-granting fish. (laughs) Did you say that there was also some kind of connection between fish in a cup and, you know, psychedelic experience? No, I think that was a snake in a cup. Oh, snake in a cup. But that's very similar. I mean, Mm -hmm. fish and snakes, hmm, both scaly things. Right. I mean, I guess with the snake, there is, you know, you could almost say that there's the notion that you had to ingest a substance, (laughs) whereas the fish is just swimming in it. It seems like the the fish in a cup is sort of like a a message from divinity symbol. I think so. And also, you know, so you can really use this card as a synonym for scrying, divination. Meditation, yeah, Mm -hmm. dreams. Dream work for sure. She is like her mother. You know, I was thinking about, I think of both the Queen of Cups and the Page or Princess of Cups as being psychics, but... I think of the Queen of Cups, you know, it's almost like she's not reading symbols, right? She just, she's she's a reflection, she's a pure mirror, she's a counselor, she's a guide. But the Page of Cups has, I think, a particular connection to signs and symbols, the reading of divination. Mm. I don't know, just something I'm throwing out there. On the tunic, you see those tulip type things? Yeah, I thought they would probably be lilies. You would think so, but and maybe they were intended to be with those long stems and the blue background, but uh, this is a hobby horse of mine, fabric textile patterning throughout the 17th through 19th centuries. That is a stylized version of a Turkish tulip, which was used throughout the Silk Road, basically. So there, like, there were various separate floral motifs that got printed across patterns ranging all the way from India, from Rajasthan, all the way to like Florence. So they were used across the board. Um, they showed up in Provence, in France, in, in Indian-inspired textiles. Um, and so this particular pattern, this very sort of three-petaled thing, is a Turkish tulip. They also had poppies... Um, pomegranates, roses, things like that. This one, the Turkish tulip in particular, is was used as a uh, symbol of love, you know, much like the rose. So, which kind of makes a lot of sense with this card. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, I assumed they were they were lilies because they sort of look like Florida de lis. And I think there's no reason not to think of them as lilies, you know? <laughs> right. And it does, they, the lily also kind of makes sense in the context of its, you know, purity. symbolism for innocence and purity and, and feminine and mm-hmm. phallic. Yeah. Both mm-hmm. kind of and, both going you know, on. Yeah. The lily is kind of like the phallic version of the lotus. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if this, um, it's just if what I'm looking at is right or if it's just a faded picture. But aren't they red on the top and more white as they go down? It sure looks like it. I mean, if you look, they like look the, white. The flowers on the, on the, the top yeah. of the tunic are, are red 
and then they get lighter and lighter until they're white near the it bottom kind of, of the looks tunic. like it on the sort of peplum of the tunic. They look more white, but then the one by the hem is more red. Uh, the one mm. sort of towards the back is more red. I, th- I think they were maybe intended to be white on the bottom, but maybe there were printer bleeding errors or something like that. Mm. But What that's... is interesting is that the colors that the page is wearing, red and blue, speaks to me of the connection with the supernal parents, Hokma oh, yes. and Bina. Yes, yes. And there's a lot of places in Wait where we see, in Rider Wade Smith, where we see parents as dressed in red and blue, you know, male yeah, and female principals right. as dressed in red and blue. So that's cool. Yeah. One of the meanings of this card that Wait picked up on from Eteya was penchant or inclination. So, you know, the idea that one has a tendency to do something. And I was trying to think of like, why that would be associated with this card. But I guess I conclude that, you know, it has to do with being led by desire at some level, led by feeling, led by desire to do the things you do, rather than sort of rationalizing your way through them. Yeah, more of a feeling. Mm -hmm. More than a feeling. (laughs) (laughs) A surrender to the feelings. I was thinking that maybe that turban type thing has to do with it. The idea that the water is like right there surrounding and on top of the head, you know, the head is. Yeah, I love I love the headgear that it looks like a wave <laughs> crashing over the, it really the feather does. or whatever it is. Looks like a, a stylized uh, Hokusai wave. Yeah, it really does. It really does. Yeah, it looks like, you know, the the mind of this person has been completely hijacked by the collective unconscious. <laughs> yeah, it's surrounding the whole head. Right. And the um, water behind the figure has, if actually, if you look in all three of the cards, just it's looking at them next to each other, mm-hmm. they all have that undulating form. I was going to ask you about that, yeah. Yeah, so behind this figure, you see those undulating waves. In the in the Thoth card, it's got that kind of green undulation beneath her. And then in my card, the edge of the shell has that sort of undulating form. And mm-hmm. the first thing that it made me think of is is Scorpio, because um, in that list of types of water, Scorpio's water is undulating water. Right, and Scorpio is, of course, the heart. Uh... The, the Right, mm-hmm. the main sign of this card the fixed mm-hmm. the fixed water mm-hmm. i'm also kind of looking at the way you know with pages since they're standing pager princesses since they're standing on the ground it's kind of interesting to look at the feet and how you know what their stance implies because if you look at the page of cups feet she's first of all she's on kind of a stage card which is interesting because you know you might expect her to be in the water but she can't be because it's earth, the earthy part of water. Mm. It's different that way. If you look at the page of wands, he's standing on very dry ground. Uh, if you look at the page of pentacles, he's standing on sort of blossoming earth, or she, if you want to put it that way. And I'm looking for my page of swords, but as I remember, the page of swords in Rider Waite Smith is, oh, here, yeah, on a hill, so raised up a little bit. So, you know, you can kind of see a connection to the element. The Page of Swords has to get a little bit closer to the air. The Page of Wands is on this dry uh, situation. Page of Pentacles is, 
you know, earthy part of earth is, you know, the earth is flowering all around it. But the Page of Cups has to be on sort of an earthen platform within the water to find her ground. It's the only one that looks like a stage card, which is interesting when you think about her ability to go back and forth between reality and not reality. Right. Yeah. I think that's all I had. Yeah, it's a pretty straightforward card. There's there's not much more in there to go on. You know, I think that's often true of Waite Smith court cards. They don't give you a lot to work with. So it's helpful to know, you know, some of the background information to help dig your way in. So that means we move on to the Thoth card. And we still are going to see a fish, not in a cup, however, this time uh, what does Crowley say? He says the dolphin. Again, that confusion. Yeah, it's it's, and fish. it's supposed to be a dolphin, even though it looks like a fish. So you see this, all and the time. I think that's just how Lady Frida drew dolphins because maybe <laughs> she didn't ever see one. Right. So the dolphin that is disporting in a foamy sea. I don't think the sea is that foamy, but that's me. <laughs> Uh, besides being a symbol for the god Mercury, also symbolizes the power of creation known as the royal fish, which is also known as the first matter. I guess he means prima materia by that. Mm-hmm. I don't know about the royal fish, though. Do you? No. The royal <laughs> fish. Yeah, I didn't think to look it up either because there was so much else in here. But um, if anybody wants to go do that, you know, go for it. That sounds like a really... Oh, you know what it probably is? Okay, so um, so the French have this thing where the prince of the realm, the sun, is known as the dauphin, which means dolphin. So uh, I that's, see. That's I probably see. Yep. the royal fish. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the dolphin symbolism is cool here, too, because, okay, first of all, it makes me think of the other dolphin in the Thoth deck on the Two of Cups. Yes! And which is what one is of... the Two of Cups but love? Right. And the Princess of Cups is the ultimate flowering of the power of love. Her, her power is to dare or to love. So that's a nice nice connection there. Right. Um, right. Dolphins also have a lot to do with... They're, they're a, a womb symbol and about regeneration. They mm-hmm. have things to do with divination. Mm-hmm. Um, I read that the dolphin also had there's um, some connection with the Isles of the Blessed, like we were talking about in yes. the Scorpio card episodes, because the dolphins carried the souls. They were soul guides that carried the souls to the Isles of the Blessed. So yes, yes, they have that's... this kind of guide. They're they're like a guide, and this card also has a connection with the soul longings and and things like that. So it kind of made sense. That makes sense, and also I think we also talked about this in the Two of Cups, maybe where the dolphin has that connection to Dionysus as his his experience on the sea, where yeah, he was about to be where sacrificed. they were turned the the pirates mm-hmm. were turned to dolphins or something exactly. like that exactly yep. and that their redemption you know their remorse leads them to be friendly guides for sailors same, yeah so they're always thing. known as as having some sort of salvation element to them yeah and then we also have oh there's so much in this card it's there's also shell motifs everywhere right we've got the Mm -hmm. scallop she's holding the scalloped hem of her dress the shell cup that she's holding the tortoise in the shell in the shell 
Yeah, and the scallop, you know, the scallop shell always makes you think of Aphrodite being born from the foam. Sure does. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting is that I was looking up, I couldn't find scallop in our symbol dictionary, you know, um, Mm -hmm. so I just went for shell. And something really interesting about shells is that because of the Venus thing, they're associated with fertility and pleasure, but they're also associated with prosperity and prosperity specifically from death because you know prosperity um the shells can be used as money and men mm-hmm. are in many parts of the world but the previous occupant of the shell has to die first so right. you know right. so there's that connection with fertility death and sacrifice which is so familiar with this card um and also the fact that water associated with the west associated with our ancestors and death in many cultures also. And there's also the really obvious symbolism of the shell that ties it back to the Ace of Cups. Yes, yes, Which has that same scallop motif. Right. I also read something super interesting about the Maya. Apparently, uh, so they, they had a hieroglyphic language as well. And if you took their hieroglyph for the sun and added to it a shell shape that transformed the hieroglyph into something they called the black sun, which represented the sun in its underworld journey through the night. So, you know, like the scarab beetle, what the Egyptians considered the sun to be doing when we were during nighttime, the sun traveling through the realms of the dark. Uh, So again, this is her ability to go back and forth between realms like that. Mm. Oh, and the tortoise, tortoise or turtle. You know, what's really interesting to me is that they chose to do a tortoise, a land tortoise, as opposed to a sea turtle, right? Yeah. Well, it made me think of earth of water. Exactly. And the other thing is that one of the most important things about the tortoise as a cosmological symbol is that it has four very sturdy legs standing on the ground. (laughs) So that's why we have cosmogonies where the turtle supports the earth because it has that stability and strength, which seems very princess-like to me. Yeah. Yeah. The whole turtle on turtle thing. <laughs> right. It's turtles all the way down. <laughs> yeah. And the, the the way it's issuing from a cup mm-hmm. reminds me of the idea of life emerging from the sea. And yeah. tortoises and turtles also have a history, just like the dolphin, of being a friend and companion type to man animal. Mm-hmm. And because they have a shell above and a shell below curved in opposite directions, that's also considered a kind of a heaven and earth symbol. Yeah, and the way they, they, they poke out from the shell, it's almost like they're emerging from this subconscious realm to right. come out into the world. And at the first sign of trouble, they'll go back in. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> How about the swan over her head? Yeah, well, that's directly from um, the book T description. We can... Mm-hmm. Um, Read that here. That's a good time to do that. Uh, A beautiful Amazon-like figure, softer in nature than the Princess of Wands. Her attire is similar. She stands on a sea with foaming spray. Away to her right is a dolphin. She wears as a crest a swan with opening wings. She bears in one hand a lotus and in the other an open cup from which a turtle issues. Her mantle is lined with swan's down and is of thin floating material. Mm. So it gives you this sense of this, you know, ethereal, dreamy, feminine 
being. Um, yeah. And then to go into the, the symbolism of the swan, well, that's interesting because the swan is sometimes associated with Venus and Libra, um, mm-hmm. which is one of the, the signs that she has, you know, her that's domain true. encompasses. And Oh, and it's a creature of water and air. <laughs> yep, a creature of Libra. water and air. There's yeah, some yeah. association with the swan um, in the story of Orpheus, and he was, so there's music and poetry and um, creativity. And then there's the swan as an erotic symbol and as this, the, the idea that swans mate for life, this whole help meet thing, yeah. um, kind of energy that plays into the story too. Yeah, and also that they have, you know, the swan song, the when mm-hmm. they die, the they sing this beautiful song, according to myth. You know what yep. you can do that's kind of interesting. I was just looking at this. If you turn her upside down so that the swan's on the bottom and she's like standing on her head, and you look at the lotus on one side and the fish or dolphin on the other, what if the lotus is like Hode and the dolphin is like Netzach? <laughs> mm, interesting, yeah. You know, sort of a the 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 airy mercurial flower reaching into the air uh and the venusian sort of connecting in the depths thing with i don't know it's just a thought i had i think there's some connection too with swans with with light and with apollo which mm. again brings in the idea of um music and poetry and you know things of that nature but they're also just a symbol of grace and and desire and and purity and virginity and and they made like for life too. beauty and um then somewhere there's a story about the swan being the creature that laid the world egg so again that's that I birthing saw that. of creativity um yeah yeah it's really interesting that there's so much mythology around love and beauty and the swan when you know in person they seem to be very bad tempered <laughs> <laughs> interesting Yeah. And then the thing I think I like best about this card is the crystals everywhere. Um, Yeah, the salt crystals. At least I think of them as salt crystals. Oh, is that what salt crystals look like? I suppose they're different of. They kind Mm -hmm. of look like that. Mm -hmm. Not exactly. The actual salt crystals are more square, but they remind me of that, that whole idea of the crystallization of water and this Pacific Ocean and... It yeah, yeah. And calls I think to mind salt, salt crystals. For sure. And crystals in general are, you know, just to be super obvious, considered symbols of clairvoyance, because they are transparent like water, and yet you can hold them like earth. Yeah, earth of water again. Exactly. If you're looking at the crystals of the Princess of Cups, there's a real uh, close connection between those and the crystal on the scepter of the Queen of Discs, which is interesting to think about because of that uh, shadow. Mm, the Earth of Water of connection. Discs. Right. The other thing about those crystals, you'll notice they have six faces, which mm-hmm. seems to be a Tiferet potential connection. Yes. Well, they have seven faces if you include the, the central one, but six facets on the side mm-hmm. with a seventh top face, I guess. Right. Yeah. And this process that Crowley wrote about is the the faculty of crystallization, which I think was a really important concept for him. The idea that the power of water gives substance to ideas. Yeah, definitely. I think yeah. Liber Theta calls her a life artist in mm. regard to giving substance to, to ideas. And also the connection with the hidden stone, which we 
talked about a little bit before um, the hidden stone. And as you were saying, the, you know, the world egg, the cosmic egg. I I also like um, what Crowley has to say about this card. He says she lives in a world of romance in the perpetual dream of rapture. On a superficial examination, she might be thought selfish and indolent, but this is quite false impression. Silently and effortlessly, she goes about her work. Yes, and I and liked that. Like she does seem like she might be dreamy and flaky and lazy and things of that nature, but as she's seemingly floating around, she's getting some work done. She is. Um, she appears to be, you know, in rapture in bliss, even though she is also asleep and underwater. <laughs> yeah, it speaks to the whole earth of water thing. So there's the, the the getting stuff done, the earth, but well, in a dream state, the water. Right. And then there is, you know, the profound nature of dreaming, which, you know, in our rational material society, we, we don't necessarily understand. But in some ways of looking at it, in some cultural perspectives, dreaming is the world. We're all being dreamt. This is, you know, she yeah, is creating right. life because we live in the dreaming. Mm-hmm. Do you think that she is completely underwater? Or do you think that part of her head is above water? I honestly can't tell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> The way her cloak is spread out looks like an underwater type of thing. And the fact that there's a fish there looks like an underwater type of thing. But then there's the swan, which is, you know, probably not underwater, but on the surface of the water, which would mean her head is peeking up out of the Into water. The air. Yeah. I was but thinking, then under, and, underneath yeah. her, it almost looks like that green undulation almost looks like, you know, the edge of the water or the banks of the sea or Mm. riverbank or, you know, something. But so it's pretty ambiguous. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that deep blue always makes me think of when I've been scuba diving, how, how dark and how blue and how, you know, profound. There's a lot of green in this card too. Yeah. So if you look at the colors that uh, Lady Harris used, there's a lot of green, which both makes me think of earth and makes me think of venus and then there's the pink which is another um venus empress color both green and pink are are venus colors right well i guess i was going to say there's no particular reason but there is because of the connection through libra i think the fact that she's the feminine princess so not only is she the daughter you know hey final Mm -hmm. which is very feminine but she's in the suit of water yeah you know, there's there's a real connection with the idea of the feminine and thus with the Empress and Venus. Even though uh, I'm just sort of doing the decans in my head, I think planetarily she only has one card that Venus is as Venus. Ruler. Yeah, Venus and Scorpio, Seven of Cups. Yeah. Mm. But still. But, Interesting, which is that's yeah. the card of, you know, dreams. Yeah. There. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. That's cool. Yeah. And as you were saying about the, you know, her, the work that she's doing, the quote from, from Crowley is that she is an active rather than passive force from the great mother, even though, you know, earth of water, right, you active think pretty again, passive, being, you know, <laughs> right. Hey, final earth right. to take action in the world. Right. Anything else to say about Thoth? I haven't, uh, I'm just pulling out the majors for a second to, I think visually, and this is 
probably true for all princesses. The other card that she has the most connection to is probably the ace. Definitely the ace. You know, with all those scallop formations. Mm-hmm. Right. The great Yoni. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, the holy you know, grail. Color-wise, color I see a pretty good connection to the hanged man as well. Yeah. That yep. underwater quality. That would make sense. Right. Right. Since, you know, I guess with the court cards, we've concluded that there's a lot more freedom to work with color in terms of being, you know, liberated from the system. So Yeah, I think in yeah. general, the court cards are m more elementally colored than yeah, having than anything else an adherence to the to the color scale. Yeah, and, you know, the the thing about the scallop formations on the ace and on the princess is that it reminds me a little bit of the way that sound travels through water, you know, the sound waves. Although we're not set up to hear it, you know, vibration travels through water. There's sort of like a connection between sound and touch in the way that sea creatures perceive sound as it travels through water. So, Sonar of the whales. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that to me is a very, you know, I think of, of, um, I don't know, that kind of perception, what we would consider hearing as a touch function seems very earth of water to me somehow. Okay, anything else in this card? I think the only thing I want to, the only last thing I want to mention is, since he didn't specifically mention it in the Thoth description, he usually gets to the geomancy with the court cards, and he didn't. I guess the best argument you can make for a geomantic figure would be that this is associated... It's with Via. With Via, right. Because yeah, her, you have the mother, the queen, is more is associated with populous mm -hmm. and the princess with Via. They're both associated with the moon and with water right. signs and the element of water. But I, I think that what I've seen it more often, it's the queen with populous and, and that's the only geomantic figure with all eight spots filled right whereas this is the only geomantic figure with only four spots filled and they have a relationship um just like uh, the mother yeah. and the daughter yeah and the and the meanings i mean populace you can think of the queen is with her relationship to all humanity you know to the understanding of everyone whereas the daughter goes back and forth between the unconscious and the conscious she takes the yeah between the, them. via with the four dots, mm -hmm. it, it's called the way because mm -hmm. it looks like a path leading mm -hmm. to or from something, which kind of makes you think of uh, the path between the conscious and, and unconscious uh, exactly. realms and, exactly. and journeys. In general, I think via is considered more good than bad. It's considered an action on the right path. Uh, it's only unfavorable if the what you're divining on isn't about progress or isn't something where progress or moving away is desired. Right. And also it's associated with the waning moon. So the, the uh, via is associated with the waning moon and populous with the waxing moon, I think. So, yeah. And that's yeah. really interesting. That takes us into the I Ching territory, right? Because mm. hexagram 41 decreasing. is associated. Yeah. yeah. So it's associated with um, this term decreasing or diminishing, like the waning moon. Uh, the 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 name for it is not sun but sun um and it's and it's really the way that it's constructed i think is with the you know earth mountain uh trigram 
over the water or swamp trigram. The idea that, you know, as the, as the level of the swamp or the water decreases, the mountain above it grows. And the opposite of that is the hexagram increasing, which I think is number 42, and is associated with the prince or knight of wands. So he's, as air of airy part of fire, he's kind of her opposite earthy part of water. Mm. And his, um, his, uh, the, his power of increase is balanced by her power of decrease, both of which are considered essential. You know Something that I saw about this decrease hexagram, um, I saw it referred to as an empty cauldron because it was about, you know, the idea of decrease emptying the cauldron. It was about turning inward and then sharing what you have with the world. I see. So giving, giving, and, yeah, giving out what you have. Right. Yeah. So, and thus the decrease in the empty cauldron because you're you're sharing what you've gone within to get. There was something I read in the commentaries about the way sacrifice or taxing from the people enriches the king, <laughs> you know, from what is lower oh, how convenient. increases. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, and that immediately inspired a very kind of outraged reaction on my part. <laughs> but <laughs> I think the idea with increasing and decreasing hexagrams is not intended, you know, as a political statement. It's just, you know, these are forces in the world things that happen. Sometimes you give, sometimes you take. The other thing interesting about this hexagram has to do with the two hexagrams that are supposed to be related to it as their uh, mm -hmm. hidden influence and underlying cause. So the one that was referred to as the hidden influence was uh, hexagram 24, which is return. And it mm -hmm. had a lot to do with gestation and planning and then also with wooing, which... Mm kind of made me think of the I desire thing as well as the fertility um, aspect. Sure. And then the underlying cause one influence talked about being open to new things in relation to her. It makes me think of the, the, you know, the going to the higher instinct, going within to find your passion mm -hmm. kind of thing Absolutely. and then to share it with the world and make it real. And by, Taking it out of you, you increase the wealth and riches of the world. Okay. Um, I think we actually did it this time. <laughs> yeah. Um, sh shall we move on to your card? Tabula yeah, Mundi, sure. Princess of Cups. Okay. I, I think this is so interesting. It's almost like she's melting into the water. Yeah. It's definitely, if you look, it is like she's made of water almost. Mm -hmm. um, you can't really see her feet because she's dissolved at the bottom there and into the water, either rising from or dissolving into the water itself. And yeah. I tried to give, you know, her garments that sort of floaty feeling that is described in book, even if it's not uh, clearly lined with swans down, <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but it has that sort of filmy it, it has quality. that softness diaphanous quality yeah right? yeah and i think it was david hulse who in relationship to this card uh, said that uh it's associated with waterfalls and riverbanks and it does mm. kind of look like she's under a waterfall a little bit it really does it really does it looks like she's you know ecstatically bathing in yeah in a fall yep, the water's yeah. coming from the, the lotus above above her mm -hmm. so she's got the the swan uh 
symbolism, just like directly from the book T description. And we kind of already covered the, all the meanings of the swan, you know, the, the association with both Venus and Apollo and desire mm-hmm. and grace and beauty and um, mating for life and the muse-like qualities. Um, you know, the swan. Yeah often seen as a romantic symbol you see it a lot on you know wedding cards the two swans with the intertwined necks that look like a heart and there's something very gentle and sweet and and romantic and imaginative and poetic about the swan symbolism Um, and then you also have the moon in the background same moon as you have on the ace of cups right yeah all of the princess cards in tabula mundi are visually coded to the the ace cards so Mm -hmm. you'll see the directness of the symbolism if you lay them out side by side they both have that large moon and the and the shell um that she's rising out of is the actual ace of cups right yeah and so if you see the on the ace of cups the the source of the water falling into the ace is basically her (laughs) yeah and that's in the ace of cups it's coming from above the Mm -hmm. the the water so it's almost like as if it's coming directly from keter and right in this case and the the splash pattern in the water looks like a crown and that's another keter Keter reference the, Mm -hmm. the crown but also in this case, it almost looks as if she's rising out of that. And the crown makes me think of kingdom, the kingdom of Malkut. So it's right. both a Keter Malkut, in this case, reference. Then you have the crystal there, just like the the crystals in the Thoth card are kind of like a manifestation of earth of water type of thing. In this case, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a ruby, which to me, rubies always have something to do with heart energy. And that heart energy, Tiferet, the connection of the princess to the prince, how the, mm-hmm. the prince carries the, the power, in this case, the power to love, and she takes a hold of that and, and manifests it in the world. And that's a, that's a heart connection type of thing, Through connection the to the emotions. Yeah. I forgot to mention back when we were talking about... It's also a connection to, hey, primal. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. that that red ruby crystal makes me think of Bina and, you know, a connection to the great mother, whereas she's the daughter that will ascend to the mother's throne, ultimately. And, uh... And, you know, the, the moon is... A divine feminine. Um, it, it's, there's some connection, obviously, with the priestess and her mm-hmm. idea of, of connection to Keter, the path, connection to divinity and the, the virginal qualities. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But then we also have the, the mother qualities, the connection with the, the shell and the pearls and the Aphrodite and the Empress and, you know, mm-hmm. hey, primal. So we've got both the virgin and the mother mm-hmm. energy. In the, mm-hmm. in the card symbols. Mm-hmm. Do you also have the um, patterns of the waves of sleep in this Princess of Cups? Or nope. So much? Nope. That's just water. Just water. Right. Yep. Right. Same as in the Ace of Cups. Good. The waves of sleep thing has more to do with the, the moon as Pisces. Yeah. Than the moon as the moon. <laughs> right. Right. Which we see in... Definitely in your Eight of Cups card and the moon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
the only thing I wanted to ask you about your Princess of Cups card was if the moon as you drew it was a particular, you know, um, the features on it. Is that the way our moon looks from here? Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, I probably was looking at a picture of the moon, but I doubt I adhered mm-hmm. exactly. I just started making craters everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I remember it being a lot of fun to make the craters. I bet. How did you do that? Just like Drawing craters in? is fun. Is it? <laughs> yeah, you just pull up a big, I, I would, I just, every time I have to draw a moon, I just pull up a giant, like really crystal clear photograph of the moon. And, you know, at some, you start with trying to render the actual real ones, but at some point you just start making craters. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So practical applications. Do you get her much? I get her a fair amount. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would say it's always really interesting on when you're reading for yourself or someone else, probably more so for someone else when this card comes up, because there's so many different ways that it can apply. Right. You know, as an actual person, it's usually someone who's sweet and childlike and romantic and inspiring and creative, a helper, you know, mm-hmm. type. But often for me anyway, it doesn't show up as an outside influence. It's more about that connection to love and creation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the muse-like qualities, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Definitely a muse-like quality. And it's about creation that's based on on emotional connection and and connection to the soul. There's something very, I mean, she herself looks like an undine. She does, doesn't she? She She looks like a water elemental for sure. Yeah. And, you know, the whole story about the undines was that they had to find a consort in order to obtain a soul or something like that. Right. So strange, right? That's the whole story of the little mermaid in a nutshell. So there's something about romance, the fulfillment of the soul through some sort of romance, whether it's a literal romance or whether it's a romance with the process of creation, (laughs) loving what you create. Like a person that I took an art class with once, they said, you have to love your painting. Mm. If you don't love your painting you know, you're not going to have that connection and want to keep going. You have to find a way to love your painting. As right. you, you know, and I, I kind of, there is a point in the process of creation where you do love your painting. There's also points where you can't Hate stand it, it and <laughs> think it's horrible. But, but there is that wonderful spot when you're creating something artistic where you're just in love with the idea of it. Yeah, I can see how that's deeply connected to this card. It also reminds me of the Disney princess narrative in a way of the sleeping beauty, you know, mm. you know, which is literally like Awakened princess by a kiss and from prince. The prince. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So, yeah, I associate this card um, with my daughter. Uh, she is a water sign, happens to be a cancer, which is not necessarily, you know, matchy match to this card, but I always think all water signs go with all, I mean, all elemental signs go with all courts at some level anyway. And she does have those, you know, fundamental part of her character is that creativity, imagination, sweetness thing. But you know, what's really funny was one time I drew this card in the morning, Rider Waite Smith, and uh, 
And she walked through, I was sitting here at my desk, I was probably making perfume or something, which is also apt, but she walked through and she was holding up a cup, a measuring cup to see if it had two centimeters of water in it. And she looked exactly, you know, like page of cups looking at the cup. (laughs) It was very literal. I haven't been getting her a lot in the last couple of years, but I had a long stretch of getting her like 2015, 2016, which I think of as a time when it was just a very emotional time for me, you know, listening to a lot of music, being very much in my feelings and in my head that way. But I really, I really love this card. And I feel as though there's going to be kind of a long process of getting to know her better as right now, dream work is very important to me. And I sort of feel like that's a new meaning that's emerging for her, for me, Mm. you know, scrying through dreams and visions, things like that. Oh, by the way, did you ever, uh, have you had any progress with your crystal ball? (laughs) I've um, used it a few times, not that many lately, but the last time I used it, I had definite, definitely was getting all sorts of imagery, um, more so like, in the past I've, you know, definitely gotten to the astral fog stage and then kind of not gotten past that. I've gotten past that and gotten imagery, but the problem is I can't make heads or tails of what the hell it means. (laughs) It's like you see some just weird, crazy stuff and you're like, okay, well, what's that got to do with what is that? Anything, right? (laughs) Right. So I've yet to have any luck interpretively with what I can dredge out of the thing. Yeah. Is it, is it a lot like dream interpretation or would you say it's different? Well, there's definitely similarities in that you can't necessarily take it literally. Yeah. You know, you, you know what I mean? You have yeah, to it's find, something other than what it's showing what you. what it means to you. And sometimes, mm-hmm. just like dreams, it's just crazy shit that doesn't mean anything. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. And that's the thing, because it's like, I mean, as as tarot readers, I think we have something of, you know, a leg up on interpreting symbols, visual symbols. But with the cards, there's kind of a bank of symbol vocabulary that you're drawing on. Whereas with dreams and with scrying, it's your bank. It's like, you know, it's your vocabulary. It's your personal symbol language. And your conscious mind doesn't necessarily know what those meanings are. And you can't look them up. Right. So you have to just sort of, I guess. And I also even wonder if it's even yours, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Like, like yeah. sometimes with dreams, it just seems to be some kind of, I don't know, garbage or nonsense, you know, that's just out there. Or Well, I think that, that yeah, I know what you on. mean. I mean, one of the things I've started realizing is that the content of the dream is almost meaningless. It's like you're going to borrow stuff from the previous day, week, whatever you saw with your physical eyes, whatever conversations you had, that's going to be used as the ingredients of the dream. But that's not the meaning, right? The meaning is is below that. So it's like, you know, imagine if you were only allowed to communicate with somebody using whatever objects you happen to have on your desk at that moment, (laughs) you know, and you had to like semaphore your way. So that wouldn't be easy, right? (laughs) I don't know about you, though, but I have dreams sometimes that I try to unpack, and they seemingly have nothing to do with anything I've done recently, or you know what I mean? They just seem (laughs) so random. Yeah. And it's definitely something that, you know, your unconscious is probably trying to tell you, but, but unfortunately, it's it's really hard to unpack. Sometimes it's really obvious and easy and other times Mm -hmm. not at all. Fascinating. All righty. Well, 
Well, shall we try and wrap it up? <laughs> oh, sure. Jeez. <laughs> First of all, we talked a lot about her as the earthy part of water, water in the world. We talked about her as the one thing uh, through its many forms or the stone. Mm -hmm, the hidden stone. Uh, we talked about her connections with meditation, traveling to other realms, bringing something back. Yeah, I didn't mention it yet, but I kind of think of her in a way as the jewel in the lotus. Nice. The jewel in the lotus is the fish in the cup. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That idea of the jewel in the lotus, that meditation, the... um. Oh, and that brings in, I think, Crowley called the swan that's in this card as a symbol of the word om, the yes. word of creation. You are right. He does. He yeah. So then the, there's the jewel in the lotus. There's that idea of dharma and maya, you know, law and illusion. We talked about shells and tortoises and dolphins and fish. Dolphins as salvation, as soul guides to the Isles of the Blessed, of the rivers of Scorpio. We talked we about the connection with dolphins and the two of cups or love. And the royal fish. <laughs> Royal fish and talking fish and oracular fish. We talked about the stories of Joan of Arc, the story of Paris, favored by Aphrodite and Helen of Troy. We talked about the muse and the idea of the products of creativity. Let's see, we talked about the lotus as uh, many different things, but also as the world egg. And we talked about the many meanings of crystals. And the swan is laying the world egg. We talked a lot about the swan and all its implications in poetry and connections to Venus and Apollo and purity and grace and desire. We talked about uh, the West and water and ancestors and death. We talked about the union with the divine. And the concept of diminishing or decrease. Yeah, as emptying the cauldron and sharing what you've gone within to find. Right, as well as the the road you take via the road you take to find it. We talked about inner worlds, like what's within the shell, within the grail, within the tortoise shell. We talked, we talked about, about the princesses as being between heaven and earth. And that her shadow side as being overly romantic, in love with love, chasing an illusion. And we talked about the princess as having a connection with the Ten of Cups, the other Malkut of Water card. And, her and the illusions be... that, that can sometimes be her fault through excess. Her connection with Keter and her connection with Tiferet, the prince who must awaken her. As the middle pillar, right, directly. Mm -hmm. And her Malkut as the seed of Keter in the next world. Yeah, and her connection with lunar lunar forces and, and the fantasy and the astral. Right, the waxing and the waning moon. I, I think of her as really having a particularly strong connection to, to the Seven of Cups, both as muse qualities, artist qualities, and fantasy qualities. Let's see. We oh, we also talked about her connections to justice or adjustment, death and temperance or art. I balance, yeah, this, I desire. The story of uh, balance and karma through death and rebirth, through soul healing growth. So much in this card. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
balance, transform, and dissolve, and uh, recombine. Shall we call it done? Let's call it done. Let's call it done. Okay. I think we outdid ourselves. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah, thank you. Twice as long as normal. <laughs> it's, oh, my God. <laughs> I guess I know what I'm doing tomorrow. <laughs> All right. So thank you for traveling through many realms with us, with the the beautiful and powerful Princess of the Waters, the Pager Princess of Cups. And we will be back next time with a new suit and the Ace of Swords. <laughs>